CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io. Hello there, I'm George Frankly, and I'm going to take a look at how even the best and brightest people can make truly stupid decisions and terrible predictions, and what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. This time on Dare to be Stupid, what exactly do I mean by this time? Wait, how exactly do we define stupid here? It's bad enough when we don't agree on the words we're using, but what about when we have different meanings of the same number? It's if by whiskey and other fallacies. On October 27, 1996, the all-time finest work of English language literature was released to the public. I can say without hyperbole that it has all been downhill from there. I refer, of course, to Citizen Kang, one of the anthology shorts in The Simpsons' seventh annual Treehouse of Horror Halloween special. Taking place during the 1996 presidential election, the two space monsters Kang and Kodos abduct and replace candidates Bill Clinton and Bob Dole. Their plan? To conquer the world by taking over the White House, no matter who gets the votes. With no interest in making any big political statements, the two skin-suit-wearing tentacled creatures say meaningless, agreeable-sounding fluff at every appearance. <clears throat> My fellow Americans, spoke Kodos in his Bill Clinton skin suit, as a young boy I dreamed of being a baseball, but tonight I say we must move forward, not backward, upward, not forward, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. You can't go wrong with any of those words. Forward is good, freedom is great, and as they say, twirliness is next to godliness, probably. It's a perfectly shallow diatribe of good words good, bad words bad, that nobody can really argue with. Not because they agree, but because was there really anything said you could disagree with? The problem is, this parody never fell quite far enough into the realm of parody. It's not just a common stereotype that smooth-talking politicians will promise you feel-good, airy-nothings. They have achieved such astonishing, real-life signal-to-noise ratio that they've changed the face of the English language. I'd like to quote a 1952 speech by Noah Sagi Sweat Jr., a Mississippi state rep who inexplicably had the last name Sweat by birth but the nickname Sagi by choice. At the time, Mississippi was the last remaining dry state in the Union, and he was pressed for his opinion on whether or not it was past time to end alcohol prohibition. His response, which I must read in entirety so we can see how far I can get without laughing, was as follows. My friends, I had not intended to discuss this controversial subject at this particular time. However, I want you to know that I do not shun controversy. On the contrary, I will take a stand on any issue at any time, regardless of how fraught with controversy it may be. You have asked me how I feel about whiskey. All right, here is how I feel about whiskey. 
If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of righteous, gracious living, into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together, that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips, and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes, if you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in the old gentleman's step on a frosty, crispy morning, if you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness, and to forget, if only for a little while, life's great tragedies and heartaches and sorrows, if you mean that drink, the sale of which pours into our treasuries untold millions of dollars, which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitiful, aged, and infirm, to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. He will not retreat from whatever this is. He will not compromise whatever this is. This is his stand. His stand that if you say whiskey is bad, then he agrees. His stand that if you say whiskey is good, well, he also agrees. His stand that he has no particular stand is paramount, unflinching, absolute. He is against whatever it is you don't like. If by whiskey you mean is such a meaningless, ever-shifting goalpost that it cemented itself into the American lexicon. The if by whiskey argument is now an established subjectivist fallacy, an argument in which objective facts are left dependent on individual subjective definitions. This is a fundamentally constant problem in how we handle information. Context and connotations can radically change what objective facts actually mean. I've railed against how statistics and numbers can lie in the interpretation before, but I'm going to be a little more particular this time. How we define our data, like how you define whiskey, can drastically change what it decides to tell us. After the break, we'll look at how what we're defining and what we think we're measuring can totally change our worldview. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go for Nexo. You can buy over 40 cryptocurrencies in seconds using your bank card, and you get free crypto rewards on each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Borrow instant cash or stablecoins against your crypto assets instead. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. So, let's start with something simple and uncontroversial. Many people have been sounding the alarm throughout the last decade about the skyrocketing rates of autism. If you look at the data, they have a point. Even the official CDC records show a rate of under 7 in 1,000 kids born in the year 2000 with autism, rising to over 14 in 1,000 kids in 2010, and 23 per 1,000 in 2018. Those are numbers, and they're getting bigger. Therefore, there's a growing crisis, and something must be causing it. Something is causing the numbers to get bigger. But autism rates are not getting bigger. You see, we're looking at number of diagnoses, not number of instances. The rate of autism being identified is going up, but the rate of autism happening isn't being measured, and few professionals believe that has actually changed in any significant way. Autism lacked widespread awareness or clear definitions up until the late 20th century. The very concept of autism disorders was barely defined in the 50s and 60s, 
and it wasn't until the DSM-3 in 1980 that it became distinguished as something with its own unique biological foundations, and not simply a variation of schizophrenia or the behavioral result of poor parenting. It wasn't recognized as a widely varying spectrum disorder until the 90s, and even then the symptoms for diagnosis were vague and somewhat theoretical. Those diagnostic definitions were refined and clarified more and more over the years that followed. So, those numbers aren't comparing apples to apples. They might not even be comparing apples to oranges. The clear definitions to identify and diagnose autism in modern day are better explained than ever with more practical test methods than ever. This is why the definition of those numbers is so vital. Rate of diagnosis is not the same thing as rate of occurrence. Bigger numbers don't mean the incidents have increased, it means we've gotten better at spotting them. This is largely the same as the rate of left-handedness. According to known records, it lingered somewhere under 3% in the United States during the 1800s until it started rapidly rising after the turn of the century. It skyrocketed up the next 40 years until it just stopped. It plateaued at about 11% in the 1940s and is just sitting there. That's because the term left-handedness in this data isn't defined as born left-handed. It means surveyed adults who self-identified as left-handed. And this was not an ideal thing to self-identify with for a very long time. If you're old enough, you probably know people who were left-handed when they were young and had it beaten out of them. With old superstitions dying out and fewer obstacles to living a left-handed life, the latter half of the 20th century removed obstructions from the people being surveyed. We still can't say with certainty that this flat 11% for the last 60 years represents the true natural rate of left-handedness. It's certainly our best guess, but we can never take that for granted. Surveys and reports like this are dangerous breeding grounds for dubious facts. For example, Gallup polls in 2005 found that 53% of Americans felt that nationwide violent crime was increasing. By 2006, that rose to 67%, and it kept rising steadily towards a massive 74% in 2010. And that's an undeniable fact. I mean, it's an undeniable fact that 74% of people surveyed felt that way. That fact means absolutely nothing to anybody. How an unknown slice of random Americans feel in their gut about what the statistics might be is such non-data that I'm pulling out my hair just thinking about it. News outlets at the time had no qualms about repeating this fact in the strongest possible language. 74% of Americans say violent crime is on the rise. That sentence was technically right. And 74% of Americans were wrong as shit. The FBI, along with many other analyst groups, have consistently found that violent crime per capita in the United States peaked in the late 80s to early 90s and declined steadily through 2010. How people felt is a thing that you can certainly measure, but that doesn't make it worth a damn. Like a long-winded Douglas Adams joke, statistics like this can provide us with crisp, whole-number answers while completely leaving out the real question. Just as a soggy, sweaty senator can't define whiskey, when we can't define the question, the answers we're given are meaningless. Let's take an extreme true crime example, the infamous Phantom of Heilbronn, a notorious serial killer and master criminal that terrorized the area around Heilbronn, Germany from 1993 to 2007. The same woman's DNA was conclusively found on samples from over 40 different crime scenes, from petty burglaries to late-night vandalism to brutal murders. While many attributes about her ethnicity and lineage could be estimated from the genotype, there was no match in any database for authorities to put a face to. And, well, all of that was certainly true. It definitely was the same woman's DNA on all of those samples, and those samples did span many years and many crime scenes. But... Her DNA wasn't at any of those crime scenes. It's true that it was on the samples collected, because it was the DNA of a woman who worked at the factory that produced the cheap cotton test swabs that all the police stations were using. 
It was real DNA of a real person, and it definitely was on those swabs. It was also absolutely useless information, and it sent investigators on a humiliating decade-long wild goose chase looking for a modern-day Lady Moriarty hell-bent on trying out the sampler platter of every flavor of crime. Real answer, false questions. A few weeks ago, I discussed the massive Ponzi scheme of the Bitcoin Savings and Trust. One man conned his way through 700,000 Bitcoin. You can safely call that number a fact. This past January, Yahoo Finance posted a short retrospective about the fallout of the amazing <clears throat> billion-dollar Bitcoin scam. That is a hell of a number. And that is also true. The 700,000 Bitcoin that Trendon Shavers moved through his Savings and Trust scam was worth $20 billion at the time of that writing. But that was written in January 2022. Bitcoin Savings and Trust collapsed in 2013, when that sum was closer to $10 million. The exciting mention of $20 billion today in that article was absolutely meaningless arithmetic gymnastics. It was never a billion-dollar scam, and the man behind it was never moving even one-half of one-tenth of one percent, that's 0.05 of a percent, of that volume of cash. Describing it in that way isn't just worthless, it's deliberately misleading for the sake of petty dramatization. But, as they can argue, it's technically true. What they said, quote, a sum worth over $20 billion today, is an accurate statement. It just doesn't mean anything. It describes a hypothetical scenario in which these bitcoins were scooped up by Marty McFly and brought into the future, because by gum, if Marty threw out the sports almanac, grabbed Trendon Shaver's private keys, warped to the year 2022, and made the alarming decision to cease being a fictional character, then yes, in that particular scenario, the value of the Bitcoin Savings and Trust scam would have increased by 200,000%. But now I've tripped over another problem with definitions. Is the 2013 value less than a fraction of a percent of the 2022 value? Or is the 2022 value 200,000% of the 2013 value? Obviously both are true. But both sound absurdly, stupidly different. And worse, they can sound very different to different people. Depending on which side of the numbers is your basis of comparison, the scale becomes inverted. This exact kind of speculative fear-mongering can work in reverse, creating horrible numbers by omission. The Wall Street Journal was happy to headline their coverage of the 2021 Chainalysis Crypto Crime Report with the words, Cryptocurrency-based crime hit a record $14 billion in 2021. That's also a hell of a number, in an undefined space. But a few paragraphs in, you can see that their crime estimates are up to $14 billion from $7.8 billion the previous year, an increase of 79%. But the entire transaction total of 2021 was $15.8 trillion, up 500% of the previous year. Yes, criminal dollars were at a new record high, like they've been almost every year, because total dollars in transactions increase every year. When we realize that the number of dollars isn't the key definition here, we realize that the proportion of illicit transactions actually went down from 2020 estimates between 0.3 and 0.6% to a new low of 0.15. That's technically a potential drop of 75%. That means that criminal spending was only up because the entire market was up, and the ratio of criminal spending to any other spending had actually gone down. But even then, that media upspin is still working from the research's downspin. How Chainalysis defines illicit transactions matters greatly. For their purposes, illicit transactions means transactions involving known illicit addresses. This is a narrow definition based on only known criminal wallet addresses, so it errs on the lower side. 
and you cannot measure unknown unknowns. But even in the simplest possible wording, a rate of anything happening can still be totally twisted around. An excellent theoretical example is provided by science and engineering YouTuber Zach Starr. A school district finds that the dropout rate is 5%. 5% of enrolled students drop out before graduation. Then one year later, the analysis is repeated, and it is now 10% of students drop out before graduation. This difference of 5% up to 10% a year later, how would you describe it? Did dropout rates go up 5% in a year? Or did they go up 100%? The rate doubled, didn't it? A basis of 5, plus 100% of that, becomes 10. But the difference between 5% and 10% is literally 5%, so which is the correct statement? Unfortunately, both are technically right. It really did double, and a doubling is an increase of 100%. But it also went from 5 to 10, an increase of 5 both of these evaluations feel dramatically different, and the mental effect can be staggering. Double is extreme. 5% is marginal. We've seen this exact hypothetical play out in real life. Many parents in the English-speaking world, especially millennial women, have had the magic number 35 drilled into them for years. That's the point of no return for motherhood. Have your kids by age 35, because after that, your biology declines. By age 40, your chance of having children with birth defects doubles. Double is the word people remember. But what doubled was the younger odds of about half a percent to the age 40 odds, about 1%. It's a double, but it's yet another relative double. When media, pundits, or even just excitable people try to communicate numbers of change, they constantly let the critical definitions fall by the wayside and focus on the difference or the magnitude of the change, the delta. But a difference isn't a statistic. It's barely even a piece of a statistic. It's only a squeezed, extruded chemical byproduct that's lost all its nutrients. The actual reported points of where things started, where they ended up, and how you identified them are less convenient, but infinitely more important. But the importance of delta, position, and vector is a talk for another time. For now, we need to finish taking control of our definitions. Let's go back to that hypothetical high school. In one year, the dropout rate was 5%. So, we can infer the graduation rate was 95%. But no, we absolutely can't infer that, and we shouldn't try. The moment we infer or translate from the stated data, we are jumping down a slippery slope. If you don't know how the data was defined and gathered, you can't make those assumptions. I never said that the number was explicitly 5% of the student population. What if there were 5 confirmed dropouts for every 100 graduates? Then that 5% would be a ratio of dropouts to graduates but actually represent 4.7% of the student body. How was dropping out defined and when was it analyzed? If it was at the time of commencement for the year, it wouldn't account for late graduates. Worse still, what if it was based on survey data and not on full records? You could be going based on students' self-reporting, which would run the risk of higher false negatives. And even something as simple as, what is a dropout? If you use a wide definition, such as students who fail to graduate on time, the numbers will err on the side of false positives. You cannot infer new statistics from previous ones without creating new complications and new risks. The results can be further skewed by definitions if the researcher has incentive to expand or shrink the scale of the issue. If by whiskey you mean that dropout only refers to students who officially unenroll during their senior year, you can massage that number down. If by whiskey you mean dropouts are students who were once enrolled as freshmen but eventually not present at senior graduation, you can prop that number up. Any national statistics of the effects of blank on children will show their hand in how they define children. 
Do they want lower results? A narrow definition of children as those under 13 or maybe in elementary schools. Do they want higher results? A wider range. Children can be as old as 18, maybe even older if their parents still file them as dependents. If by children, you mean, well, you get the idea. I tend to leave ideas like this feeling pretty down, like I've just contributed to an already epidemic level of mistrust in science and numbers. But I don't want anyone to walk away feeling like everything is always bogus. The problem, more often than anything, lies in the people, not the numbers. Every time a fact is repeated, it misses or gains a little something. The further they get from their original sources, the more they mutate. If a number ever strikes you as meaningful enough or interesting enough to tell somebody about it, give it that little bit of diligence. Check the source. Got the source? Check the number itself. Got the number? Check what they meant by those words. You don't have to be a professional statistician to see when double isn't that big of a deal, or when whiskey doesn't mean whiskey, or even anything at all. Thanks for listening. Remember, no matter how smug I make it sound, all of my job titles are of the armchair variety. If you're an expert and I'm getting it wrong, I'd like to hear about it. <laughs>